Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. This is Life of the Law, a 360-degree look at the law and our legal system. I'm Al Letson. Today, Life of the Law is bringing you some of our best stories from the past years. Stories that ask big questions about the law in our lives. Like, should virtual games have virtual laws? And who takes over when the law disappears from a neighborhood? We're taking a vigorous look at the life of the law. That's ahead this hour. Stay with us. Law prohibits equally a rich man and a poor man from sleeping under the online space and the game space. Why should legal system really take much notice of it? I don't believe in vigilantes, and that, that wouldn't be the society I believe in. This is a special hour of Life of the Law. I'm Al Letson, and Life of the Law is a podcast and blog that delves into the intersection between law and everyday life, or as the case may be, virtual life. Over the past couple decades, more and more people have gotten into the world of online gaming. Sophisticated games allow people to create avatars and compete with one another. It's all enveloping, and some people now compete for a living for real money. But the consequences of bad behavior online can be real, too. How does the virtual world deal with flesh-and-blood problems? Anthony Martinez has our story. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court... Given a society that doesn't have law, can we record firsthand as this changes to a more democratic system? This is Life of the Law. I'm Anthony Martinez. Christian Rivera was a champion among the best in the sports league. Rivera won large cash prizes, had major corporate sponsors, and fans around the world. Did you get a lot of practice in yesterday? Well, we got some good games and we played really well, so I'm really confident going into day two. I'm pretty sure that we're going to advance. But you won't hear about Christian Rivera on ESPN. He's a professional gamer. His sport 
happens completely online. Heroes come in many forms. Some have vision. Some have grace. And some have strength. But only a few shall become... Legends. Rivera plays something called League of Legends, a multiplayer online game set in a fantasy world. The game involves two teams fighting against each other via avatar champions, like Alistar the Minotaur or Evelyn the Assassin. A team wins once they've raided and destroyed the other team's base. In an annual report, market research firm DFC Intelligence listed League of Legends as the most played PC game in North America and Europe. The creators of League of Legends say 32 million people play the game for more than a billion hours each month. Most play League of Legends over the internet from the comfort of their homes. But for professional gamers, competition happens in public cyber arenas with large crowds watching both in person and online. Teams compete for enough big money that the game is their full-time job. Two teams, one million dollars, and the chance to take home the Summoner's Cup. Millions of people watched online. 10,000 adoring fans were in attendance, all to see who would be crowned Season 2 World Champion. Christian Rivera was slated to become one of those world champions in this year's upcoming season of competitive play. But not anymore, because League of Legends has banned him from its top tournament for one year. The charges against him? In-game harassment, verbal abuse, and offensive language. Never before had a League of Legends player, let alone a professional player, been punished so drastically. When Rivera's ban was announced, fans of the game weighed in on YouTube. I think we share some similarities because I've been banned before and I've corrected my behavior. I don't think that they need to take it this far. Like saying that he can't compete, it's destroying all his hope. Some people said, oh, it's too harsh, he's been banned for a year, it's the end of his career. I was, I'm thinking, well, no, he has probably ruined his career if he can't get back into a team, he can't come back, because, well, the guy's acted like an arse. Rivera's sentencing was handed down by something called the Tribunal. A virtual judiciary that is built into League of Legends. A panel of Rivera's skilled gaming peers reviewed the evidence against him and decided the punishment. The ban has real consequences for Rivera's life and finances. He'll have to start his climb to the top all over again, winning far less money along the way. And since the average pro gaming career lasts only five years, Rivera may never get back to where he was. Riot Games, the creators of League of Legends, could just delete the accounts of troublesome players altogether. Online games are not democracies. But these judicial processes do exist within many multiplayer online games. To understand how they came to be, you need to know more about the history of virtual crime in virtual worlds. My name is Simon Ferrari. I'm a PhD student in digital media at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Ferrari studies the politics and design of digital games. He also plays League of Legends. I play League of Legends and I study League of Legends because it's the game that I like to play the most. And it just happens that it's also incredibly interesting in a variety of ways. Ferrari is fascinated by how laws came to exist inside virtual worlds. It's this kind of experimental look at a model and an almost an alternate history, like given a society that doesn't have law 
can we record firsthand as this changes to a more democratic system, right? Because we've only got incomplete records of what has happened in real-world nations in the past. Online gaming has been around since the late 70s. Over networked computers, players could interact with one another via rudimentary text-based chat rooms. So if my character's name was Simon, if I wrote talk, hello everyone, then the game would tell everyone in the room, Simon says, hello everyone. Players could also enter commands to show their character's actions or emotions. So if I type emote feels very happy today, then everyone in the room would read, Simon feels very happy today. As with Dungeons & Dragons, players had to use their imaginations to get the most out of the game. Some highly skilled players could even program new elements into the game. Typically, they'd craft dramatic narratives or magical items that other players could then interact with. But in the early 1990s, that norm was violated in one game's most public chat room. One night, a character called Mr. Bungle entered the living room with an item described as a voodoo doll, kind of a digital voodoo doll. The so-called voodoo doll was in fact a programming trick that commandeered the game. The problem with Mr. Bungle possessing this voodoo doll was that he was able to fake emotes from other players. And using that ability, he basically created this scene where multiple women within the game were seen violating themselves and each other in kind of horrific graphic ways. Eventually, the game's developer stopped Mr. Bungle's grisly scene, but his actions had real-world effects on the game's community. An article in The Village Voice described the incident as a cyber rape. One woman whose character was violated by Mr. Bungle said she suffered from bouts of post-traumatic stress following the attack. What follows after this event is everyone in the game needs to figure out, well, how do we prevent virtual rapes from occurring? We, We can all agree that we don't want people to be able to do this. So the victims of the rape and their friends and allies called for the erasure of Mr. Bungle. At first, the developers hesitated. They knew that as the game became more popular, more malicious players could be drawn to it. And the developers didn't have the time or manpower to hear every case and ban every player who acted horribly. Which is why they decided to create what was one of the first virtual judiciaries to deter future in-game crime. It was basically an adjudication or arbitration system. And it was a way to settle disputes between two individual players. This was a way of asking one uninterested third party to come in and judge the, the facts of a case, like in the case of a virtual rape, and determine if there was fault and what the punishment should be. And with video games, reviewing the facts of a case is the easy part. Factual evidence is recorded at all times, by the game system itself. So every word that has been logged is recorded in a database. Every movement of the character, you know exactly where two given players are at any given time. So unlike the real world where so much of the judicial process is built around this fact that you have firsthand accounts that are delivered via people's memories and voices that causes all these problems and doubts, in a, in a virtual world, there's never that doubt. You see it. In the League of Legends tribunal, if a player is found guilty by majority vote, usually their username and IP address are banned for a few days. Their harassment score, a metric used by the game to track problem players over time, also goes up. 
Usually, all that is enough for most players to check themselves next time they log on to the game. Christian Rivera, however, had been through the tribunal nine times and punished eight. Rivera's accumulated harassment score at the time of his ban had him among the worst behaved of all North American players and the number one worst ranked pro player. Whether it's Mr. Bungle or Christian Rivera, problematic players tend to spread negativity, bringing out the worst in other players. You're a dumbass and I hate you and hope you die in fire, slowly. Game makers will tell you they want to discourage behavior like this in order to help bring about a sort of virtual world peace. But Rutgers University law professor Greg Lestauka says that game makers' motivations aren't just altruistic. If a company focuses on the short term, disregards certain users just in order to make a buck, I think that might be profitable in the short term, but ultimately it's going to mean that the platform has less respect. And less respect means less people want to play the game, which really means less money for the game company. Listauka is the author of Virtual Justice, a book exploring the social phenomenon of multiplayer online games and how they relate to the law. I think that a lot of people think that in some ways the online space and the game space is trivial in the same way that like an arcade game, you know, like Pac-Man uh, is trivial. You know, you just play it for a little bit and then the game is over. And why should the legal system really take much notice of it? And I think what that loses sight of is the fact that online games today are really persistent cultures and they're persistent economies. Lestauka believes that these virtual judiciaries play an important role in keeping real-world courts out of the picture. I think to the extent that a game company creates clear rules that people understand, that people respect, and doesn't act in arbitrary ways and gives some degree of due process to gamers you know, when they're accused of violating rules, then that actually makes the community more healthy and makes the company more profitable. After the League of Legends Tribunal banned him for a whole year, Christian Rivera released a statement. In it, he apologized for offending other players and his fans. He says he understands professional players are role models and should act accordingly. He also said the ban won't end his aspirations as a professional player. Quote, League of Legends is my life, and I will do everything in my power to play as long as possible. For Life of the Law, I'm Anthony Martinez. And I'm Al Letson, bringing you a whole hour of stories from the crew at Life of the Law, a show that explores all kinds of ways that the law intersects with everyday life. One thing about justice, whether it's virtual justice or the quote-unquote real thing, it's supposed to be impartial. But that doesn't feel fair when a man with a badge tells you to get out of a public park. How about the main, main container or main pocket? You got a warrant? Yeah, you got a warrant? Ron, I'm going to Ron, you know? Because it's what I got to do. Mr. Fisher, Mr. Field, we're not friends anymore. You told me that three months ago. I know. We're not friends. I ain't hurting nobody down here, man. Bye, guys. A look at who's lost when the law excludes some groups from public space. 
that's ahead on this special from Life of the Law. Stay tuned. You're listening to a special program from Life of the Law, a podcast and blog that explores how our legal system works in the world beyond the courtroom. I'm Al Letson, and when communities change, the law often changes with them. That can leave some people out in the cold, or as our next piece from Jason Albert explores, out in the sun, away from the shade of a riverside park. Law is more than the policeman on the corner. More than the courthouse where our laws are enforced. More than the jail where lawbreakers are punished. In your whole community, there are customs and moral codes which guide your actions. What social controls affect you? I mean, it's against the law. Having an open container in a park, I do believe. Mr. Tisher, Mr. Field. We're not friends anymore. Well, you told me that three months ago. I know. This is Life of the Law. I'm Jason Albert in Bend, Oregon. I live on the bank of the Deschutes River. In this stretch of about a block, the river divides two distinct sides of our city, the east and the west. The riverbank is a public space open for everyone but people don't always agree on how to best spend a hot summer day. Davis Park is on the east side of the river. It has the perfect combination of shade and privacy for people to hang out, let loose. Teenagers used to come here to make out or drink some beers. Now, on hot days, it's where many go to cool off, including the down and out. On the west side of the river, where I live, Things like birding, jogging, and swimming are the norm. It's a different kind of park over here. We just got a call. Juveniles jumping off the Bill Healy Bridge and doing backflips and so forth. My name's Officer Mark Tischer. I am the Parks Resource Officer with the City of Bend Police Department. I'm riding along with Officer Tischer as he patrols his beat, more than 50 city parks. We stop at an intersection, and I see two tanned guys chilling at a bus stop. Tisher rolls his window down. Hey! Hey, Tisher! How you doing, man? Good, brother. What's going on? Same all? Laundry day, you know? I recognize those men. For the past two summers, these two have often made Davis Park their daytime home. In a way, they've come to represent the character of the park. This round of that. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
You guys been keeping Davis Park clean for me? What's that? Yep. Yeah, we're going to the rapids, so meet us down there. All right. Okay. I'm gonna, are you going to body surf it today? It's 80. I might get wet. <laughs> for years, though, Davis Park shenanigans went unpoliced. So Davis Park is now that place, which all cities and towns have, where local customs are at odds with city laws. But about a year ago, the Parks Department proposed building a bridge between the two sides. That got people's attention on my block. Paul Stell is the Natural Resources Manager for the Ben Parks and Recreation District. He says they've tried most everything to enforce local laws and regulations in city parks. The Parks Department even got rid of the park rangers. Because they didn't have full authority. They couldn't make citations or arrests or, you know, um, carry a firearm and, and take care of business. <laughs> now there's a parks cop. That's who you met earlier, Officer Tischer. The increased law enforcement is necessary, Stell says, because city parks still serve a critical function. On a hot summer day, it's a great place for anybody. They can be there from, you know, when the park opens till the park closes. And if they don't have any place else to be, that's a good place to be. But there are rules, and we need to follow the rules. That's the only issue. Here in Bend, the rules are basic. No criminal activity, no endangering the peace and safety of others, no drinking alcohol or possessing an open container without a proper permit. If people can agree to this, Stell says those living close to city parks have an obligation to let it be for the entire public. Living next to a park is a commitment. (laughs) Stell doesn't finish his thought, but I know what he means. Residents have no control over public land bordering their property, and there's a steady flow of different people and habits. So on my block, some homeowners want to project their idea of how the other side of the river should be. People on the west side engage the police, like my neighbor, who I'll call Sam. She didn't want a real name used. You know, we tried to figure out how to solve this problem. What problem? Of um, unhealthy and unsafe behavior dominating a small community park. Sam says a group of men show up around 10 each morning in Davis Park. They claim a picnic table and spend all day there, drinking and smoking. And that would happen every sunny day. Two people would come and secure that, that uh, picnic table. The hotter it was, the earlier they'd come. So they'd make sure they had it for the whole day. I asked Sam what she means by unhealthy. Unhealthy is open container drinking, people getting so intoxicated or high on something that they're yelling at people in the park and across the river, including children. Okay, walking up. I'll ring the buzzer. Hi, Jason. How are you? So I am recording. Is that okay? Say what? You're recording? Sure. Yeah, okay. So have a seat. Marion lives across the street from Sam. She's another block matriarch. She also wishes Davis Park felt less menacing, but she still likes it here. There's a wildness about living next to moving water. The voice of God, as the Old Testament says. The sound of water is the voice... I forget, but you can look it up. Marion says people in Davis Park should be more discreet. 
being part of the community that that if if you're going to drink you should uh, do it surreptitiously rather than out in the open and and not get so drunk that you <laughs> you know yell at people and and cause a disruption i mean it's against the law having an open container in a park i do believe marion's a retired lawyer she spent decades representing people like those across the river but the way she says that it's against the law it's an easy way to make gray situations black and white. We all do it. So I push her to give me a sense of how she feels about it on a human level. You know what I was thinking about was when I went to college, we studied the contract philosophers. You know, Locke, Barclay, and Hume. And that the problem with Davis Park is that there's some folks that um, really don't have any reason to, they're homeless, and they're um, kind of down and out, and they're, um, sounds like having issues with drink and drugs. And so they have no reason to uh, abide by the rules of the community. So there's no social contract. And so the question becomes, well, how do you enforce laws with people like that? So you want me to do a countdown? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. My name is Chris Clord. I'm the managing director of the Bethlehem Inn, uh, Central Oregon's largest homeless shelter serving men, women, and families. Marion got me thinking about social contracts and how exactly we establish customs and laws in places like Davis Park. Clord, a longtime Bend local, says for a city its size, the scale of social services here are too small. That means individuals in our community must provide support. And Clouart says that support isn't just food and shelter. There's a wonderful quote, which is that the law prohibits equally a rich man and a poor man from sleeping under a bridge. A rich man would never need to sleep under a bridge, but the thought that there's an, a, a sense of equality there, there's an equivalence there, is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Ben's got an oversupply of brew pubs and golf clubs. So if a person with a bit of disposable income wants to crack a beer on a hot day, they've got plenty of places to go. But Clort says many people in Bend have a tough go of it. Their choices in life are fairly limited. So if you don't have much money and it's a nice summer day, where are you going to go? You're either going to go to a library or you're going to go to a local park, which is your park as much as it's anybody else's park. The question has to be, what are the modes of behavior in that park? Clort makes an important distinction between law and custom. So law is the thing that we tell ourselves we want to do. Custom is, is what we allow to happen. Right now, those two are not aligning in Davis Park. Clort is a humanist. He sees the need for a dialogue between all the park's users. But until that happens, it falls to the police to decide what's allowed and what isn't. We can go look here. Dispatch L63, community policing. So we're back at the bus stop where Officer Tisher and I have just run into Ron and Matt. Remember when they said this? I'm gonna, are you going to body surf it today? It's 80. I might get wet. <laughs> After Ron and Matt head off to Davis Park, Tisher shows me the records. He points out a few thefts and DUI charges from back in the early 90s. After a few more hours driving around, Tisher decides to check in on Ron and Matt at the park. Officer Tisher walking down. He's got his binocs. We're on the west side of the river looking into Davis Park. We bump into my neighbor, Marion, walking her dog. 
Everybody's out. You know, it's sort of like Alaska. This is one of the first lovely days. Everybody's sort of getting their sun. Hey, Officer Tishner, our champion. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. We have a spotting scope if you need better, better um, bot, you know, optics. Tisher jumps in the patrol car. Davis Park contact. Tisher says there's about six people partying. Among them, two guys on parole that shouldn't be drinking. They could possibly face jail time. Tisher also says one of the parolees can be difficult when he's drunk, so he calls for a backup. And by the time we've driven to Davis Park, a police car carrying two officers rolls in behind us. Tisher questions Ron and Matt, and another guy I know as Mr. Mills. Tisher is interested in their backpacks. What about the main main container or main pocket? You got a warrant? Yeah, you got a warrant? Ron, Ron, I'm I'm you Ron you know? Because it's what I got to do. Hey, we've, talk, we've talked hey, for years. Hey. You know? There's all of gray backpacks. That's my right here. Yes, my beyond in here, but. Clothes I got clothes beers in there, that's right. All right. Yes. Well, I me. got clothes ones. Sit I bet I wouldn't drink it. Hey, Mr. Mills. I'm just letting have you a seat know, on buddy. That. Mr. Mills, sit down right there, please. Okay. Oh, man. Whatever, dude. Mills looks pissed. His face reddens. His muscles tighten. About now, Tisha calls for a third backup. You're on probation, Mr. Mills? No, I'm not on nothing, buddy. Not since August 8th of 2000, old boy. So there what, you what? Yeah. Why are you upset, Mr. Mills? Because, man, you want to walk around here. You want to throw some guys around here, man. Run my shit and let me get the hell out of here. This is the last time. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't coming down here no more. Every time I come down here, the police show up. The fourth officer shows up. Ron, Matt, and Mr. Mills all seem glad to see him. Hey, it's about time. Fields, how are you? Good, sir. How are you? Good, good sir. Officer Tischer opens his ticket pad and writes Fields a citation and an exclusionary notice, meaning he cannot enter a city park for three months. Here's how Ron Fields feels about all this. Mr. Tischer, Mr. Fields, we're not friends anymore. I told you that three months ago. I know. We're not friends. I ain't hurting nobody down here, man. I'm shutting up and I'm going to This place just cleared out pretty fast. Wow. Tisha and I walk back to the police car. Wow. Let's see how quickly things get south. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Had I been watching this scene from across the river, besides the cops, it would have seemed normal. Ron, Matt, and the merrymakers pretty much keeping to themselves. But here's the thing. I'm at the river daily. I notice most people break some sort of law or rule here. Some drink alcohol openly, dogs run amok off leash, all against city code. And I'm talking most visitors, just regular folks. No different than Ron and Matt whose biggest crime, perhaps, is treating Davis Park like their living room. Yeah, I have seen Ron and Matt get too drunk, yell at people, but it's been rare. There's been no dialogue, no discussion of what the customs in Davis Park should be. The law has been enforced, but I'm unsure we've made our block a better place. Certainly, it's less welcoming. And the band of ragtag men, they'll simply move on, maybe to another park, the problem's unresolved. 
Later this summer, on another scorcher, I floated a section of the Deschutes with my two children. Life jackets on, we jumped in a mile upstream from downtown. We carelessly floated, our bodies bobbing all the way. Near downtown, we got out and sun-dried. I looked across the street at the bus stop. There stood Matt, one of the usual suspects at Davis Park. Although this time, he didn't look the part. His big belly exposed to the sun, his arm around his little girl. He'd been floating the river too. reporter Jason Albert in Bend, Oregon. Since he reported the story, Jason says the city of Bend has built a footbridge over the Deschutes River, connecting both sides of the park for the first time. And Jason says it's been more than a year since he's seen the two men ticketed by police, Ron and Matt, in the Riverside Park. I'm Al Ledson, and this is a special hour of program from Life of the Law, podcast and blog that asks big questions about the legal system in the U.S. We just heard about some consequences of vigorous law enforcement, but what about when the opposite happens, when the law seems to disappear from a neighborhood? I don't believe in vigilantes, and, you know, that that wouldn't be the society I believe in. This man's justice or penalties of beating, sometimes he might make a mistake. And then I get involved because... He just committed assault. Either Roy commits an assault. I, I mean, mean, I'm not going to say that I like it when somebody has to use that kind of force, but sometimes people have to do what they have to do to keep their their quantities livable or, or safe. He, he, he's the kind of person that if, uh, if he felt that it was needed, I would trust him. The thin line between fighting crime and being criminal. That's coming up on Life of the Law, right after this. Welcome back to this hour of special programming from Life of the Law. It's a podcast and blog that takes us out where the rubber meets the road, legally speaking. Like a neighborhood of Brooklyn that saw a huge crime wave in the 1980s. Residents of Greenpoint suffered the consequences, but say law enforcement seemed to forget about them. In its place came a different type of justice. Life of the Law's Caitlin Press brings us the story of one Greenpoint resident known as the Block Boss. 
Life. I've lived here all my life. I knew that there was more to life. 15 to life. I'll skip all the details. I'll keep you all day. When you stand around watching someone get hurt and don't do shit about it, that's a big problem. So law is... I mean, it's against the law. Policy and rules and... Restoring order and determining who's in the wrong and who's in the right. The law in itself is a complex thing. This is Life of the Law. I'm Caitlin Prest. Henry Rivera grew up with his mom in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I wasn't supposed to be born. My mother was in love with a doctor who was married. Whatever happened, happened, and I came along. And they beat her up, trying to kill me. She was seven months pregnant. So they induced an early birth, and I came out um, with no damage whatsoever. At the age of 14, I was almost 200 pounds of solid muscle. The neighborhood where Rivera grew up like many in New York in the 80s and 90s, was a little rough around the edges. Back in the days, uh, there was a certain area that you couldn't pass the line because you would get beat up. It was more like survival. But for better or for worse, he loved it. The neighborhood was great. It's always been a family neighborhood in a lot of ways. Rivera got older and started a family of his own there. And he became an important person in the neighborhood. He became that guy that people would rely on to take care of things. I met him through a friend, Pablo Araldi, who had opened up a bike shop on the main stretch. Henry came into the shop and just went right up to the counter and introduced himself just to introduce himself, because we were the new kids on the block, and that's his block. Uh, so he ha- he knows everybody on that block, because he makes sure that people know him. And it, it wasn't obvious, you know, from the beginning, um, what Henry did. You just knew that there was a reason to respect him. <laughs> and I don't usually question those kind of gut instincts. <laughs> I just went ahead and respected the man wholeheartedly. Araldi over the years came to think of Rivera as a block boss figure. Others call him the mayor of the block. But one thing is certain. You don't want to get on his bad side. You know, if you need a hug, we give you a hug. If you need to be smacked, we give you a smack. That's the community that I lived in. And there are a lot of communities like Rivera's around the United States where people take the law into their own hands. There are a lot of situations in which people's desire for order is not being addressed by whatever legal authority is in charge. That's Laura Beth Nielsen. She's a research professor at the American Bar Foundation and the director of the Center for Legal Studies at Northwestern University. And sometimes other systems are working just as well, and you don't need the police, right? So you can have... There's research about um, tight-knit but very crime-ridden areas where a lot of the policing is actually done through networks of mothers and grandmothers. Or people like Henry Rivera. Neighbors say, in the worst of times, he tried to keep the block safe when no one else would. 
My name is Laura Hoffman. I've lived here all my life. I'm 54 years old. In the 90s, Laura Hoffman was bringing up six kids in a low-income housing apartment right around the corner from Rivera. I used to have to get up maybe a half hour, 45 minutes early in the morning just so I could sweep up the crack vials and and needles and stuff that were hanging out in our hallway. My kids knew what I meant when I, when, when I said hit the dirt. Hoffman said she turned to the police for help. As soon as something would start going wrong, she would call her local precinct. And she would call. And she would call. Anytime that I ever called them, I didn't get a response. Um, not a good one, at least. Hoffman says she tried everything from filing over 20 official complaints to showing up at the precinct in person. But to her mind, the 94th Precinct was an R&R R&R precinct. precinct, Which is a rest and relaxation (laughs) precinct. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. Johnny Barella is the former sergeant of the 94th Precinct. Sometimes the police can't do everything. You know, we, we did a lot with a little. He worked here at the time Hoffman was bringing up her kids, when crime rates and drugs were really a problem in the neighborhood. He grew up here, too. We're sitting in his favorite bar, which is also a pizza joint. The police department, politicians, they they handcuff you. They're always crunching numbers and looking for this and that, and you really don't care about the paperwork. Your your job is to get the bad guy, you know? But then you have to understand the paperwork's important because you got to prosecute him. Our job doesn't end with just putting handcuffs on somebody when we know it's the bad guy. we got to put him away in jail, so. Barella admits that things were pretty bad. People didn't, didn't feel safe, weren't safe. It, it, you know, nobody was really safe. I mean, there were murders. There were, everyone knew about it. Everyone either, unfortunately, was a victim or knew someone close or relatively close to them that, that was a victim. Some sort of crime, they were victimized either by a larceny, break-in, car theft, or burglary, or, or worse. So people did not feel safe. And this is where a guy like Henry Rivera comes in. He understands what the police were up against. Yeah, cops have to run by all these laws of forget gathering evidence and all that. I mean, I don't have to. That's it. I don't have to. Nor am I going to waste my time. When I mention Rivera in our interview, Laura Hoffman smiles wide. You know, if you have a problem, he's there for you. She's among the people who have turned to him for help. Let's just say that he did what the 94th Precinct didn't do. According to Hoffman and other people in the neighborhood, that could be any variety of things. One example involved a group of crack addicts. There were a lot of characters that that were hanging out on the corner. And of course, it was near, like, kids that were that he knew that, that were passing by. He took care of it. <laughs> and when Hoffman says he took care of it, she doesn't mean Rivera called the police and filed a report. When he saw a couple of drug users out on the corner... I walked downstairs like a normal Puerto Rican would do in his boxers and chancletas. And as I walk out the door, I, I actually jump out the door, and there's two garbage cans there. One is metal, and well, not old school metal, 
you know, that aluminum wrestling match metal, you know, the soft one, and one is plastic. I pick the plastic one up and I swing, like I do a full 360 with the handle and I clobber the guy, right? I mean, he is done, one shot, done. There was garbage in this plastic one. The silver one was empty. So I picked the silver one up. I, I've never, yeah, I, you know what, I enjoyed it, Fuck it. I clobbered her over the head with the metal one and she fell and shut the fuck up. And he, he, he actually got that, that corner cleaned up, I would say in a matter of weeks. This is only one of many stories Rivera has about keeping the neighborhood in shape. There was another instance where he caught someone stealing a lady's purse. It would have been self-defense if I just gave him three kicks instead of 35 of them. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, but he was mugging someone. There was an older lady. So his methods are a little extreme. But I figured maybe Barella, the retired police sergeant from the neighborhood, might be sympathetic, especially given his admission that the police weren't super effective in handling the crime in the neighborhood. I don't believe in vigilantes, and, you know, that, that wouldn't be the society I'd believe in. But this man's justice or penalties of beating, sometimes he might make a mistake. And one person's going to be victimized himself. And then I get involved because he just committed assault. Either Roy commits an assault. I, I mean, mean, I'm not going to say that I like it when somebody has to use that kind of force, but sometimes people have to do what they have to do to keep their, their quantities livable or, or safe. He, he, he's the kind of person that if, uh, if he felt that it was needed, I would trust him. You know, then I'd say that, you know, if he, if he thought that he had to re, uh, resort to something like that, then he had his reasons. So in the eyes of the law, Rivera's a criminal. But in the eyes of the community, he's a keeper of the peace. Well, if he has the backing of his community, um, then there is, a, there is a way in which it's legitimate. That's Laura Beth Nielsen again. When taken to the extreme, you know, say he begins um, bringing out a baseball bat or a gun, you know, no, that's not legitimate. But insofar as there are things that aren't doing serious violence and it's a shared norm in the neighborhood, um, that's right. That's um, that's community. You know, that's what we call community. But don't you think that Rivera's methods kind of sound like they're crossing the line that Nielsen's talking about? The serious violence line? There's a lot of people who need to get their asses handed. And I slapped him hard enough where he was I'm going to smack you in the fucking mouth. And I clobbered the guy. If you need to be smacked, we give you a smack. On the other hand, if we're talking about community norms, especially at this particular time in Greenpoint, this type of behavior was pretty common. Even Laura Hoffman swung a baseball bat from time to time. Nothing like having a crazy lady coming at you at 3 a.m. with a Louisville slugger. You tend to listen. If I'm a product of my surroundings, then I'm a happy product of my surroundings because at least we never let anyone get away with bullshit. While his approach might be in harmony with his immediate community, they are in conflict with the norms of the general public. 
His use of violence is what pushes his role in the neighborhood from neighborly to potentially criminal. I asked him why he felt he had to take things so far all the time. So when you see tough guys or, or beating people up for no reason, what do you feel like doing? I'll ask you that question. Running? You can't hear it very well because I'm cowering a little, but I say... Kinda. Kinda. Sorry to say it like this, but the gangster in me is coming out. It's pussies like you, okay, that piss me off. Because when you stand around watching someone get hurt and don't do shit about it, that's a big fucking problem. And a lot of people do that. You know, I could see where he's coming from. And, you know, realistically, you know, did that did ever go through my mind maybe? You know, certainly. We're all human, but you know what? We all come back to the, you can't do that. You know, it's, a, it's not going to work. You know, there's always somebody tougher, and so it just comes into war and battle, and it's, it'll never stop. He's just a thug. But Rivera is more than just a thug. He shows up at city council meetings. He lobbies for things he thinks are important. He coaches Little League Baseball. He's all for what he calls good cops, but only to a certain point. Well, we have laws on books for a reason. They fit in when they are taking care of things. When they're not taking care of things, they don't fit in at all. According to Hoffman and other people on the block, even Sergeant Barella himself, they weren't taking care of things. And the fact is, there are a lot of people like Rivera in high-crime urban communities across the U.S., Communities that, for many reasons, don't see the law as a reliable source of protection. Block bosses, mayors of the block, mothers and grandmothers, gang leaders. People that take on an unofficial position as arbiter of order, and sometimes running afoul of the law for doing that. I've been arrested. Right? You know, I didn't do any time. You know, once everyone finds out what really happens, you know. I've been in trouble, but never convicted on anything. You gotta record these numbers. It's a new generation. Bike shop? Yeah, a new bike shop, but that's been there for a while. Nowadays, Greenpoint is mostly gentrified. There seems to be less of a drug problem, at least out in the open. Rivera spends less time beating up crackheads and more time building movie sets and doing stand-up comedy. Though, you better be sure, he'll still give you a smack if he thinks you deserve one. For Life of the Law, I'm Caitlin Prest. That was Life of the Law's Caitlin Prest in Greenpoint, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. You have been listening to an hour-long special of stories from the project Life of the Law, podcast and blog devoted to all the ways the law intersects with our everyday life. Thanks so much.
Life of the Law is produced by Julia Barton, Caitlin Prest, Nancy Mullane, Alyssa Roth, Shannon Heffernan, Jillian Weinberger, and Katie Barnett. Music by Kyle Kaplan, Todd McDonald, and Matthew Daher. Our web editor is Mary Atkins. Our philanthropy coordinator is Katie Barnett. Financial support comes from the Open Society Foundations, with special thank yous to Thomas Hilbing. Thanks also to Making Contact, Life of the Law's fiscal sponsor. You can subscribe to Life of the Law's podcast and learn more about live storytelling events in your community. Just head over to lifeofthelaw.org. Or you can subscribe to us on Twitter. That's at the life of the law. That's two V's. The life of the law. I'm Al Letson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you around the law. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. Uh, Think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. (laughs) Uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. (laughs) Eh, Don't worry about it. We're we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. (laughs) Oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.